1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to DSC's Campfires with Larry Wysoon, a unique blend of hunting, fishing, wildlife conservation, and the outdoor lifestyle. DSC's Campfires is brought to you by DSC, conservation, education, and hunter advocacy. Hornady, accurate, deadly, dependable. Trigicon, brilliant aiming solutions. Taurus, award-winning pistols and revolvers. Mossberg, American-built, American-strong. Habit, our gear, your adventure. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to DSC's Campfires, and this happens to be our two- hundredth episode. We've been around now for four years and looking forward to a much more of the same in terms of maybe another four to five years at least. But today I have a truly special individual with me, Dr. Mike Arnold. Mike and I have gotten to know each other and uh, he's one of the people that I truly look up to and, and really truly admire for so many different reasons. And part of that I think comes from the part the fact that he originally hails from Texas and he's moved on here since then, but Dr. Mike Arnold is is does so many different things. He's a geneticist. He is very much involved in the conservation movement across the world. He's a book author. He's a writer of outdoor stories. Uh, he's a taker of, of uh, big game animals, and in so saying, I have to say... Mike, welcome to the podcast, but also I'm still a little bit jealous over your brocket deer from <laughs> down, <laughs> down south of Texas well, a little way, but welcome uh, to the know, podcast. I recommended the counselor you needed to go see about that, Larry. <laughs> you just need to remember, you know, you got to work through those issues, dude. Well, I, I keep calling you about it. Hopefully that you can help me a little bit explain from a genetic standpoint why that feeling is there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's upbringing. You know, your your parents didn't love you enough. Positive, so no, no, I, I I have the same feeling when I look at some of uh, oh shoot, some every one of your darn white-tailed deer. I look at them and go, darn. You know, when do I get to run across something that looks like that? It'll happen. It, you know, we I get tickled about that too. I mean, I've been very fortunate and blessed with places I've gotten to hunt and all those kind of good things, particularly when it comes to white-tailed deer. But, you know, we live in the, the finest time, as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to hunting, and that includes white-tailed deer. We've got bigger racked and 
probably more white-tailed deer now than we've had in many, many years and maybe in, even in recorded history or even prehistory kind of thing. And and the same thing can really be true now. I know that you've kind of fallen in love with Africa and, and that resulted in, in bringing back the lands there on Katata 11 and all those kind of things. But, you know, I know, too, that one of your heroes was Teddy Roosevelt and, you know, guys of that era. And you think about when they went to Africa, they went by a boat. <laughs> it took days. And then they had to get on a train. And then they would finally get to a point to where they could jump off. And, you know, their safaris were, oh, my gosh, you know, 60, 90 days and I think even a lot longer sometimes. And, and yet we can get on an airplane, fly there in a day for the most part. And within two to three days of leaving home, we can be on truly in safari on, on a camp somewhere. Absolutely. It's, and you know, you think about it and it's, just, it takes you longer and you've done this more than I have, but I mean, a lot more than I have. It, it takes us longer, doesn't it, to get into, say, Western North America or into <laughs> British Columbia or someplace like that uh, a lot of times than it does to get to somewhere in Europe or Mexico or Africa on one of our safaris. And, and I, I'm, you know, now I still love, you know, those trips into the Northwest and the West, West U.S. and into Canada. But, but still, you're exactly right. You know, uh, I bet they got a little tired of those travel times, but, you know, they were used to it, I guess. And that was just the norm. But, yeah, driving, we couldn't afford to, to drive around, could we, right now, very long and on safaris because it cost us too much money to have to <laughs> drive somewhere as opposed to fly. Exactly, and I think everything, you know, is relative. Uh, they were probably thrilled that they had faster boats as compared to the sail, you know, sail ships <laughs> years ago kind of thing. And then yep. the, the, probably the, the trains that they were on were coal or steam instead of, you know, maybe having to go on horseback or something. So I guess everything is relative when you get right down to it. But you've just gotten back. And this is, I want to visit with you a little bit about your last trip. But you, I was somewhere, I think, Actually, I was on a fishing trip with Jim Zumbo and, and uh, Rick Lambert in Oklahoma, and I kept getting these photographs by text, which absolutely truly amazes me, of you with animals in Africa. And I'm going, uh, and then I noticed, too, that a couple of them were every bit as big, and at least one that was a whole lot bigger than anything that I've shot in that same species and I've hunted them a bunch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so for your listeners, they, they need to know that Larry is nice and Mike is mean. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's, that's the bottom line, and they probably figure that out anyway. <laughs> no. But yes, we'll visit that one in just a minute. But we started out... Um, the main the main emphasis of the trip it was uh, Francis and I my wife and I both went the, uh, Francis is a camera person and videographer again bless her heart she's not a hunter so but she sure loves Africa and uh but we, the, the main emphasis of the trip was conservation yes. uh, through hunting. And uh, that was what we were gathering information for. Uh, there are three sports field articles, for example, coming out of our Mozambique oh, wow. time 
um, uh, sorry, Mozambique and South Africa time right. that uh, one is on the cheetah lion reintroduction, one is on pangolin introdu- reintroduction, rewilding, so the little scaly anteater in the Mozambique and the Katata 11. And then the third one's on rhino work that we did in South Africa and the Kalahari area. So, um, and I was doing, inf- I was gathering information for articles, but I was also gathering information for another book that I'm that I'm working on currently yes. about conservation through hunting but worldwide. But we also did some hunting. You know, I got a bush pig finally. Uh, I say finally. I got a bush pig in Katata 11 and a Lichtenstein heart of beast, one of those funky looking things yes. up there that you can only get there and you've been to Zambia, right? No, but I know I know the one you're talking about. I've, I've hunted them elsewhere, yeah. uh, farther north. And you can and, get it in Zambia, or you can get it there. And for some reason, I thought you'd been to Zambia. So the so there are just a couple of places. Now they're all over the place at Katata Eleven. As Mark Haldane, who runs that place, said to me, "You don't get a Lichtenstein heart beast. You're blind <laughs> or real picky." And I said, "Yes, sir." So they they've got tons of them and real nice ones that I did get. A nice one and then we came back down to south africa and we hunted in the eastern cape and then um and did you know gathered information for articles there and that sort of thing so that gets me to the point where i wrote a silly article and larry has seen it and so is my brother <laughs> and it's called larger than my brothers or larry washington's and now there's a there's a subtitle <laughs> to that racy sound and title which is that uh, a steam bock at last and, and that's what i think you were referring to that i did finally shoot a steam bock out of all the tiny tin that's the one that i did not have I'll be larry and my brother gave me heck over, you know, <laughs> kidding in a nice way about the fact that everybody even Stevie Wonder had a steam box and I did not and so what was wrong with me kind of thing so I finally did get one and that was in the Eastern Cape area in the Cat River Conservancy that is such a fantastic area the Eastern Cape is and, and I've actually even been in the Eastern Cape when it was really really cold I remember a time when I was there on a hillside hunting uh, the mountain rebuck, and we were hunting in snow, and it was snowing the time we were there. So I, I came back and I told people about it. And I, if I had not had photographs, and then this was goes back to the time when we were just starting to do some video in, in hunting in Africa, and and had not had the video, I think the, the people that I know, particularly here in Texas, would just kind of looked at me when I said that. I said, "Oh no, wait a minute! I've got proof! I've got proof!" Kind of. Thing. But it can be really cool. That is such a beautiful country in a lot of different ways, is it not? It really is. The Cat River Conservancy is down, you, you probably know the Cat River area, but it's down in the, well, what you would call the lowlands of the Eastern Cape. Yes, and we got Steambach and I got a common eland. It's all low fence. Both properties that we hunted were were you know free range animals and it's not if it's it's not fenced in at all which is what i wanted to go do uh so it's in the lowlands it rained on us a little bit it was a little bit chilly but then we went up to the stormberg area which oh, yes. is uh, above tree line which is what you're talking about yeah and francis's quote the whole time is looking at me she kept saying i just want my feet to be warm <laughs> you know i mean it was cold there was a 40 mile an hour wind 
uh, up on top. It really reminded me of the Western U.S. Looked like Wyoming foothills of the Rockies kind of area. Beautiful, gorgeous, gorgeous area. But Jiminy Crickets, it was cold. It really was. And I, I shot a, give you an idea of the wind, I shot a spring buck up there. I just finished an article and turned that one in. Shot a spring buck. That, I mean, they were just as flighty as heck. I yes. mean, just like antelope. It's like pronghorn, I mean. And uh, we we spent our i we had our iPhones, which is not a good idea. And we looked at how far we went. The stalk, which was mostly on hands and knees, went over four and a half miles. Oh my gracious! And we kept bumping them, and finally we got within three hundred eighteen yards. Is what our rangefinder said, and I took the shot. The bullet drifted, I I guessed, Larry. I mean, you know, I knew what the trajectory was right. going to be dropping. But I guess where the, because of the 40-mile-an-hour wind at 318 yards, the bullet drifted over 10 inches. We did a video later of the where the entry wound was and the exit. It drifted 10 inches. That was a 200-grain, 300-Winchester Magnum from Hornady. And the darn thing drifted that far in that wind. And so the, it was windy. I mean, I loved it. Oh, yeah. West Texas. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned that. I've hunted Val Raybuck kind of in some of those areas up there. And it reminded me a lot of the higher country of Wyoming, including the yep. wind. And, I mean, it was mostly just grassy open hills. We were, you know, to me, it kind of looked like above timberline kind of thing. And uh, I shot one, the one that I shot there, I shot with a 375 uh, Ruger. And same thing, even with the heavy bullet that I was using, and I think it was a 300 grain uh, DGX because that's what I carried with me for all the other stuff that I was doing while we were there. And and even it drifted, you know, at, at almost 300 yards, probably about six, eight inches. And so it's amazing what the wind can do to, to bullets sometimes. It's um look, you know, I, I my uh, the it the springbok dropped, okay, all four right. legs lifted off the ground and it dropped and it didn't twitch. And Dave, my PH, slapped me on the back. What a great shot. And I said, Well, Dave, okay, let's review. <laughs> now I knew, you know, from practicing and practicing and practicing where the what the bullet dropped should be. Yes. I said I held over its hip. Because it was, you know, uh, quartering away. And, right. And I said to him, I said, look, you know, I mean, there's some luck in here. And I don't know. I know there's some snipers out there who would have read the wind just fine. But I, I'm, you know, I'm not there. So anyway, I was very, very happy that and it was a beautiful animal. I was very pleased with it. But, yeah, it's, I, you know, I don't really, I told him I like to be within 50 yards, <laughs> no wind. <laughs> You're talking about me here as well, too. <laughs> Uh, uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about your, your purpose in going. I, and I know there were actually many purposes when you get right down to it, but, but the, the new book that you're working on, uh, how did all this play into the, that book and the production of that book is, is it coming in the future? I'm assuming now. Yeah. So it's a good, it's a good question. And I have two more places that I need to get to. And if your listeners are out there and, and, they have suggestions, please come to me. But uh, actually, I have one covered, and that is Central Asia. 
I need to get to, and that's Pakistan. We had to delay that one because they're having elections in October. We had our whole trip set up, but uh, it's a little bit, uh, there's a little bit of disturbance there right now. Yeah, so sir. they suggested we wait until next May. But Europe, I'm going to go, I want to go to Europe as well and, and look at their models. But what we were doing in Africa this time was gathering information on models of conservation through hunting that we did not, had not seen before. So for example, the rhino work in the Kalahari um, of South Africa. So we worked with black and white rhinos, uh, helped in the darting and we didn't dart, but I mean, helped in the collection of samples, uh, medical treatment, that sort of thing of these animals that are being conserved there the money that is you uh, that is is the basis of that conservation comes through hunting on this this massive property out there that's you know like 250 260,000 <laughs> acres yes. and so all of the security all of the I mean and the security costs them about eighty thousand dollars a month I think it oh is goodness, and so yes. to to just keep these animals safe from the uh, syndicates, the poaching syndicates. And so working with them and gathering information and talking to them and understanding, you know, what hunters are doing to try to keep uh, an incredibly endangered set of couple of species, the white and the black rhino, uh, from disappearing off the face of the earth and keep them in a natural setting as natural as possible uh, so that people can see them and people can view them. However, they need to be hunted. They need to be hunted for income, but they also need to be hunted for population control and genetic diversity. You and I have talked about this before. Yes, right. You do not want to build up inbred in, you know, populations. And so you, you have one of two ways of of uh, keeping that from happening. You export, you know, brothers mm-hmm. and sisters or cousins or whatever out of properties or you hunt them. And hunting them obviously then allows you to purchase more rhinos in this case that bring in additional diversity so so that's what we were doing we really our trip it was like i say it was a little over three weeks in total it was really focused on trying to understand what hunters are doing for conservation in this case and it, it larry is just amazing what hunters do and we ought to be really proud of that both here in north america it's not just africa here in north america in europe in central asia in africa you know hunters are really the the backbone of of conservation efforts in so many areas that are that you know work I should say, or effective conservation. You're right. You know, I've been involved in with the uh, DS, well, with Dallas Fire Club, with DSC, and also the DSC Foundation. And we finally have the DSC Foundation, where it's under DSC, but also a standalone group. And through DSC Foundation, we have funded all kinds of different research, including a lot of the stuff that's gone on with Mark Haldane, who's been a recipient of, of money from DSC and DSC Foundation for a long time, and. 
as are some of these other projects. And all that money, quite frankly, comes from money that we accumulate through auctions and through donations and things of that nature. But interestingly, when you start asking those people who are donating, who are buying, it is hunters. It, it is hunting that is supporting all this. And you mentioned a while ago, there's, it's costing them how much per month to just protect these animals that they have. That's not even including the, the, the all the other things that go along with it in terms of, of moving animals and bringing animals in. It, it's a tremendous amount of money, is it not? It is. I mean, the we're talking millions. Of, well, in terms of the rhinos, just the rhinos it's millions of dollars it really is millions of dollars each year and what they were what i'm actually have a conversation that i'm uh, a zoom call to a guy in england who is actually in charge of the three largest white rhino herds in south africa really after after you and i finish up i'm gonna get in contact with him and he wants to talk to me he's not a scientist he's actually someone who is uh has a military background this sort of thing and so we're going to chat about you know how could i contribute to try to affect in a good way the south african government just to just to say okay think about it scientifically Think about it from a conservation standpoint. You know, think about the harvest of horns and uh, cutting down on the uh, impetus and the catalyst for poaching teams. If you if you actually go out there and harvest horns like you said that you were going to do, the South African government, if you allow the property owners to do that and they can recoup some of their costs and still keep the hunting going as well for with the old bulls that need to be taken out of the population, then you're allowing them to be economically viable and you're keeping these two species around and you're reducing the need for wealth or the impetus, the cost, the sorry, economic benefit to poachers. If you flood the market with a bunch of horns, it's going to work. And so it's those sorts of things that it's millions and millions of dollars, regardless of whether or not they allow the property owners to do that. But if they don't allow them to do it, there are two properties that are about to shut down and they probably have three or 4,000 white rhinos each. Oh my goodness. So what are you going to, what's happening to those animals? Well, they're going to be put down. There's, there's no, there's no recourse. If you're bankrupt, you know, you're not going to drop the fences. No, no. Um, the animals are going to have to be put down. And so what are, you know, that's the kind of thing that we want to get across to those who are conservationists or preservationists is that you're being short-sighted. You're saying that animals shouldn't be touched, but you don't understand that the taking of a single bull black rhino funds the whole operation for 12 months. And, you know, or really helps towards that. So you the funding of that operation and the preservation of that species. Now, what do you, what do you want to see done? You know, do you want to lose it or do you want to help with this process and allow, first of all, the darn thing's going to die or it's going to be killing other bulls and you're finally going to have to 
put it down right. because it's just gotten to that stage. So, gosh, Almighty, you think about that. If, if people just used a little bit of common sense, and we had true conservationists, which to me means wise use or wise management thereof, instead of preservationists. Yep. And and what you're what I'm reading into this that the preservation preservationists are really the ones who are killing when you get right down to it that species. It, it is true, Larry. Unfortunately, preservation, where what they're talking about is no uh, intervention whatsoever, no control, no whatever, and no hunting in a lot of cases, what, they, what they're really doing is leading to mismanagement rather than what you do all the time for landowners, which is wise management and, and using, like you said, common sense, but it's, it's based on your scientific understanding as well. Right. I mean, and your knowledge, your, your broad knowledge base. I mean, it would, they wouldn't want, let's just put it this way. None of your property owners, unfortunately, I shouldn't say this because I could make a lot of money, uh, (laughs) would want to bring Mike Arnold in. They're going to want to bring Larry Wiseman in and, you know, to do their properties because they bring me in, they're probably going to end up with a lot of prickly pear and that's it. You know, I'm not. (laughs) Well, that's not all bad either. (laughs) So, you know, so it's, uh, you want to draw from all of those expertises and, and inform. So I'm hoping maybe, you know, it would be lovely to be able to, to be, yeah, that's the reason for these books, Larry, that I'm writing. And a lot of the articles is to try to inform folks, Hey, this is what's going on. Because even hunters, like you said, hunters don't even know. No. Right. You, you, I mean, or yes, not, you're right. Not in the know in a lot of these cases. Exactly. To me, there, there are so many different ways that they could work with the rhino program to perpetuate that species and continually you know, make sure that we have them in the future. As I recall, the rhino horn pretty much continues growing throughout its life, doesn't it? That is correct. Yeah. So, so, um, and you can harvest. Yes. You, you can, you know, you can just harvest the horns and they will grow back. For example, one of the bulls that we, uh, I sent you that photo where right, I exactly. had a hold of the rhino horn in the ear because someone yelled out, grab the, <laughs> yelled out, grab the horn in the ear and like an idiot. I, I, you know, you'd think at 65 years old, I would have learned not to have just listened to people like that. You yeah, know, but I'd have been disappointed if you hadn't done it. Like <laughs> kind of and so, uh, but that particular rhino had killed two other, he was, fully mature bull and older bull and he'd killed two younger bulls. And so what they did was sawed off the tip of his horn while we had him down, had him anesthetized. They sawed off the very tip of it. And I said to him, how long will it be before it grows back? And they said, Oh, it'll grow back in another probably 18 months or something. He'll have the tip back. So they actually, uh, grow a bit faster, uh, oh darn it! You know, for I cannot remember right now. You may know one of the species, black or white, grows faster. I think it's black. I think so you too. Just yes, have sir. more whites around is why they're poached so much more. Right. Uh, and uh, of course, they get larger as well. I mean, larger bodied animals. But yes, the uh, but anyway. So yeah, the horns grow. If you saw them off, they grow back. They're a fingernail, basically, right? Right. I mean, you know, a large fingernail. But I mean, that's the same <laughs> material. 
Well, that to me, you know, if again, if you took a common sense approach, if you had a herd, if there was a legal market uh, for rhino horn, that would pretty much, to me, eliminate some of the serious poaching problems that we have, particularly if there is a certified animal that you take it from, that it has to be, you know, part of a program kind of thing. But that to me would would be an ideal way to make sure that we have rhinos well in the future. Well, and and once again, the South African government step step for example. And I don't mean to be picking on them, no. But they they said they were going to allow that, and that's why people invested millions into bringing these animals into their yes. properties. And then they stepped away from it because of political pressure from guess who? You know, places like the U.S. and Europe in particular, and, oh, you shouldn't be, you know, touching the animals. They should never be darted. They should never be X, Y, or Z. And and now now they're going to be paying the price. The animals are paying the, the price. The animals are paying the price, yes, sir. Mm. Mm. My gracious. So what beyond the uh, rhino project, we talked a little bit about the hunting that you got to do. What were some of the other things that you were involved in while you were there? I, I know you were gathering all kinds of material for the new book. Well, I was. I mean, once again, uh, uh, Diana Rupp asked me to do a uh, another <laughs> update on the lions and Good. cheetahs. Uh, I was just going to do it on the cheetah reintroduction in Katata 11, and she said, do you mind doing it on lions? And she is, she's, she's probably like you. She comes up with really cool names for articles and stuff. She always replaces the names <laughs> on my articles. I'm not sure why. That's, that's pretty bad, actually, that I can't come up with good names. But anyway, she came up with the cats of Katata 11, and, you know, and she said, just do the lions and cheetahs. So, so we actually booked some time uh, in helicopters and in ground vehicles while we were at Katata 11 to go out and view cheetahs and, on the ground and from the air and then the lions that were collared. Um, I got to tell you an anecdote. It was so, so hilarious. So we're on, we're on, uh, we're in the four wheel drive and we're going out to see this big male cheetah. And uh, they have located it. They know where he is, blah, blah, blah. And so anyway, we get there and we see him. And he's, you know, trying to hide underneath a palmetto. And Francis right. and I are both there. And the scientist who's working on him, Tamar, as she said, look, do you want to get down off of the truck and walk up there and, you know, get a little bit closer to him? But Francis and I look at one another and go, we're not sure this is a joke or she's just mad at us about something. But anyway, so we get down off the deal. As we're going past the window with the PH who's driving the Land Cruiser, he looks at us and goes, Godspeed. <laughs> <laughs> and it would take that. <laughs> I can't outrun you. But anyway, so we had a, we had a, we, we did get to get up closer to it, but uh, it was wonderful. The, the projects there, these reintroductions, we're talking about hunter funded things. The Cabela Family Foundation, and I know we just lost Mary recently. Oh, I know, so sad. I, it broke my heart to hear yes, that, that had happened. And uh, and I, my heart goes out to Dan and the rest of the family, all of them. I hated to hear that Mary 
was gone. She was a she was a sweetie and one of my one of my friends. I just loved her to death. Yes, sir. And, um, but anyway, the Cabela Family Foundation. And and they won't tell me how much, but I know they're spending millions on these reintroductions. Yes, and sir. they are a hunter-funded foundation. They are a they are committed to seeing this kind of work where the cheetahs are never going to be hunted, Larry. You know, I mean, right. and they're and it's like the pangolin work, you know, that they're doing. The scaly anteaters aren't being <laughs> rewilded in there. So for hunters to take, it's nothing like that. Hundred dollars. Hunters are passionate about seeing these ecosystems put back together. I'm just so proud of us. I really am. I am so. too. I am too. And you mentioned the pangolin. I've, I've I've seen cheetahs on Marina Lambrick's place there in Namibia, and they were radio collared, and we played around with that a little bit while I was there. But the pangolin we found on a property somewhere close to uh, Vinhook, as I recall, mm-hmm. and uh, absolutely an amazing animal. In, in so many different ways. I mean, you talk about looking prehistoric, they truly do. They really do. I mean, they, you know, once again, they've got the, adap- they have the adaptations that our armadillos do. Right. Um, and, you know, the, the, unfortunately for them, you know, over the last, uh, let's see, well, in a 10-year period, they lost something like 10 to 15 million of them out of that nature and the reason and because they're spread all the way from Africa to Asia and right. so there's a bunch of different types seven or eight species something right. like that but you know once again they're used for traditional medicine the scales are supposed to be effective for various things which doesn't make any sense once again the scales are <laughs> basically keratin I mean they're fingernails right. you know right. it's it's all mythology but they're also used for jewelry and all this sort of stuff and they're eaten you know, the meat is considered, the flesh is considered a real delicacy by a lot of folks. And so uh, the fact that, and that's being just funded, just to tell you, and it's in the article I wrote, but that's just being funded right straight out of the pocketbooks of Mark and Lorette Haldane. I mean, they just decided they wanted to do this. and They're going to do fundraising. And I hope that they'll find sponsors because these little Absolutely. guys and gals are, need to be protected and, and put back into places like Katana 11. So. Oh my goodness. Lots of, lots of interesting things going on there. And again, it comes right back down to the fact that hunters are paying for all this conservation, not Absolutely. just for the animals Absolutely. that we're interested in. Like hunting. I say, I'm proud of us. Oh my gosh. We ought, <laughs> we ought to be absolutely, truly proud. I know that, you know, here in the U.S. and uh, it's basically the same way. It is the same way. It's hunters paying for conservation. It's not just paying for conservation of, of game animals, but all the other animals that are out there as well, too. And particularly in terms a lot of times in improving and maintaining the habitat such that it is. And so hunters, if you're out there listening, I know there's a few of us out there, you know, tell your story, be proud. If you have an opportunity to explain why hunting is important to not only here in the U.S., but the animals we just talked about in Africa, by all means, please spread the word. I've had the opportunity to visit with some people through uh, some of the things we do there in Round Top, Texas, where ladies know that I have 
do some hunting because of the, the heads that we have on some of the walls. And they, you know, I can see and I'll go over and visit with them. And they said, you know, isn't that species just about gone? And I go, no, ma'am, it's, it's here because of hunting. And get to explain to them why hunting is important and how hunting plays in the conservation of not only the animals that we hunt, but, you know, the non-game species as well, too. And so if you get the opportunity, by all means, please tell people. And thank you for doing what you're doing with the books. My gosh, uh, I've run into people in airports and a bunch of other places where people, I look over and say, what book is that? And I can say, it's bringing back the lines. And I go, oh, my, I know that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Don't read that book. No, I'll need to read that book and then pass it on to somebody else. Go buy several copies to give to your friends. <laughs> Well, you know, we met some non-hunters actually when we were in uh, in Johannesburg and at the at the guest house there. They're real sweet at the guest house. They're selling copies, and cool. there was a couple, couple of copies left. And uh, this couple, there was one sitting on the table, and they were asking, "You yeah, know, what what's this book about?" And I said, "Francis," I laughed, and we told them a little bit about it, and they went and bought a copy. And the guys, we started talking, and he said, "You know." I'm really interested. He said, I'm not a hunter. Uh, really? And he said, but a lot of the folks here in this guest house are, and I guess you are. And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm a hunter. And so <laughs> he said, I want to read this book. I want to read about, you know, what you just talked to me about. And I said, well, I hope, I hope it's effective and I hope you enjoy it more than anything else. But I hope also it, you know, it talks to you about, you know, why we think that hunting is uh, so effective in conservation and community development. So that was that was encouraging as well. It's just to uh, see some non-hunters reading it is uh, fantastic to me. I totally agree. I'd, and, and again, like I said, if it, I think the smart thing for us to do is where we can with that book is to purchase it. And after you've read it, pass it on to somebody, but even better, keep it and buy a few other copies to give friends that that may be riding the fence or, you know, you visit a little bit about conservation in the past because the message that you provide in there is just absolutely fantastic. Well, I think everybody ought to buy at least a thousand copies. I, but I do too. <laughs> <laughs> my, well, let me guess my grandchild needs some toys so anyway no i i really do hope that it it has a good effect and and uh we've been encouraged the sales have been very good but i mean i'm just encouraged that it's getting into folks hands whether they're hunters or not absolutely and i I'm, I'm thrilled for those who are reading it who are not hunters now you've got other books coming out and we'll i want to talk about those a little bit in the future here we'll try to get together i know that you've got a meeting coming up uh with a gentleman to talk about rhinos uh in just a little bit but uh you mentioned europe and, and you mentioned if you if anybody has suggestions i would like to suggest somebody to you and that's uh, if there's anything in europe that we've and we've hunted with numerous times it's uh, scandinavian pro hunters it's stefan and sophia bengston and both of them are wildlife biologists uh both of them are extremely knowledgeable as far as all the hunting things that go on in Europe and uh, ac across the span of Europe, actually. And uh, 
I can highly recommend. They're very easy to visit with, fun to be around, and have some great properties that they have access to. So, uh, And they're very attuned to what's going on as far as hunting is concerned throughout Europe and throughout the world, too. They hunt Africa a little bit and, and also here in North America, but they really know what's happening over in Europe. So those would be some really good contacts, and hopefully I can get them onto uh, the podcast here for too long as well, too. Oh, that's fantastic. And, you know, uh, people have asked me, why do you, you know, uh, express things that you don't know? And I said, I don't know if you've ever met a professor before, but most professors know very little, and we should just admit that. And, and every time I teach a course, I realize when the kids raise their hands and I'm supposed to know everything, and they say, uh, what about this? And I'll, I look at them and I go, you know, I have no idea, but I'll look it up for you. <laughs> so uh, I appreciate that, Larry. That's, that's why I threw it out there is because... Um, you know, I know what I don't know on this and I'm, I'm really looking for those contacts, but I will definitely reach out to them. Now, uh, I do have a sensitive question though for you. Should I mention your name? <laughs> you know what? Actually, they're dear friends, among other things as well, too. And, and uh, I've worked with them a little bit on some of their properties and that kind of thing, too. And so absolutely, please mention my name because I think the absolute world of both of them, because, again, they're outstanding wildlife biologists on top of everything else and and very much involved in the hunting world there. And they, they hunt for the right reasons, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, they do a lot of things for the habitat and the non-game species that are available or that are there on those properties as well, too. So great, great operations, great people, and, and, and a lot of fun to be around on top of everything else. Mike, I know you've got to go here in just a little bit. Please tell everybody how to get in touch with you, how to get the uh, your, your website, which is probably the easiest and the best way to, to learn more about the books. And I'm sure you'll be making announcements there. And then... Uh, about time you get back from your next trip or before you leave, I want to get you right back here again around the campfire as well, too. Oh, you're you're very kind, Larry. So, yes, if people want to reach out to me, my email is mike at mikearnoldoutdoors.com, and my website is just mikearnoldoutdoors.com. And they can, they'll see, they can purchase a book there if they want to. And that'll come to them signed. If they buy it through Amazon, I don't ever see those. And so those, those won't be signed. Um, I'll also mention that Larry is connected with Sporting Classics. Sporting Classics Bookstore has uh, copies of it, uh, same price, and those are signed. So I just wanted to mention that because I I know they're doing, you know, you do work with them and Absolutely. you write for them and that sort of thing. Absolutely. Great publication as, as, as sports a field is too. I, Diana Rep's been a friend for many, many years and I've been fortunate to have an article to there occasionally as well. So Mike, thank you so very much. Uh, again, I could not have thought of anybody that I would have wanted to have on the program for the 200th episode. So I am so truly honored that you could be here with us 
us today and really look forward to the next time we get together and, and getting you back here to Texas on a deer hunt or something so we can sit around the campfire and tell a few stories that we probably shouldn't be telling on the on the podcast kind of thing. So <laughs> <laughs> I would love it, Larry. Well, you have a good rest of the day. And you too, sir. Ladies and gentlemen, please join us right back here next week for the 201st episode of, of DSC's Campfires. Thank you so very much for being with us. DSC's Campfires has also been brought to you by the Crown Bar in the Grange and Roundtop, Texas, Texas Wildlife Association, Double Nickel Taxidermy, H3 Whitetail Solutions, and Burnham Brothers Game Calls. You want to succeed, you want to fish, you want to be one of the greatest. Tune in to West Marine's Life on the Water, presented by Costa Custom Boats, every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. A life that has the stories to back it, a life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6'8 Western. Oh, I'm the old there, baby, right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.